Hello everyone and welcome to the September 5th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the State Compensation Insurance Fund does not owe policyholders interest on premium deposits. Here's what happened in the unpublished decision of Flahaven versus State Compensation Insurance Fund. Mr. Flahaven filed a class action against the State Compensation Insurance Fund claiming that they should pay interest on the deposit premium that it takes when an employer obtains a policy for workers' compensation insurance. The trial court ruled that the state fund had no obligation to pay interest on a deposit premium because the policy contract did not create such an obligation and no obligation was imposed by any California law. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of Flahaven versus the state fund affirmed the dismissal. Flahaven claimed that the use of the words your deposit premium in the policy indicates that the deposit premium belongs to the policyholder, not to the state fund, and for that reason, interest should be paid. The appellate court disagreed with Flahaven's argument. The court noted that even deposits into bank accounts do not necessarily earn interest for the person depositing the money. Even a bank account must specify that it is an interest-bearing account before a bank is required to pay a depositor interest. Flahaven relied heavily on the United States Supreme Court decisions and other state cases which the court considered and found them to be distinguishable. The summary judgment in favor of the state fund was affirmed. The Court of Appeal resolved a dispute over the calculation of a Boy Scout Ranger's earnings. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Motherall versus WCAB and the Golden Empire Council of the Boy Scouts of America. Motherall worked for the Boy Scouts of America as a camp ranger. He was paid an annual salary equal to 40 hours per week at the minimum wage. His employment contract specified that his salary included $5,055 per year for his living quarters and utilities at the ranger's residence. It also provided that he would receive $187.50 a month for use of his vehicle for business. Motherall was injured at work in August 2007. The parties disputed whether Labor Code Section 4454 required that the market value of his living quarters, utilities, and car allowance should be included in computing his average weekly earnings and his resulting disability payment. The Labor Code says that in determining average weekly earnings, there shall be included the market value of board, lodging, fuel, and other advantages received by the injured employee as part of his remuneration, which can be estimated in money. At the hearing, an accounting specialist with the Boy Scouts acknowledged that Motherall received lodging as part of his employment. At the time of his injury, Motherall was paid $6.62 an hour in cash wages. That figure was based on the $7.50 minimum wage less the value of his lodging per week. The lodging credit was supposed to be consistent with an Industrial Wage Commission wage order which limited the amount an employer may use as a credit for lodging to meet part of its minimum wage obligation to $35.27 per week. 
Motherall estimated the value of the apartment he occupied at a higher amount than the wage order limit based on what it cost him to live at a trailer park next to the camp. Also an insurance adjuster who spent a couple of hours investigating the cost of renting an apartment in Sacramento also testified to a higher amount. Nonetheless, the work comp judge ruled that earnings were to be calculated at the minimum wage since it was the intent of the parties to pay cash plus lodging to equal minimum wage and had the value of lodging been increased over time, the cash payment component would have been reduced. The WCAB denied Motherall's petition for reconsideration on the earnings issue. The Court of Appeal reversed and noted that the wage order limits the amounts of a credit to no more than $423.51 per month. Since the housing value was more than the maximum credit allowed by law, the excess amount constituted an advantage and should have been included in the calculation of his average weekly earnings. And the car allowance was not considered by the work comp judge and was to be paid regardless of how much or even whether Motherall drove and therefore also constituted remuneration and should have been included in the earnings calculation. Many legacy COLA cases have started to unravel in the aftermath of the California Supreme Court ruling in Baker v. WCAB. One good example is the County of Fresno that just received a favorable ruling as a result of the Baker case from the 5th District Court of Appeal. The Fresno case involved Patrick O'Brien, who was employed by the county as a deputy sheriff when he was struck by a drunk driver in 2003. O'Brien suffered head fractures, brain hemorrhages, a fractured pelvis, and comminuted fractures of both lower extremities. His treating physician ultimately declared him to be totally permanently disabled. The work comp judge awarded 100% permanent disability and a COLA beginning on January 1, 2004 and continuing each January 1st thereafter, consistent with the now overturned Duncan decision. Fresno petitioned for reconsideration because the Supreme Court had agreed to review the Duncan case 15 days before the award. The WCAB, however, denied reconsideration, adopting and incorporating the work comp judge's reasoning as its own. A subsequent petition for writ of review was granted by the Court of Appeal. The WCAB was reversed in the unpublished opinion of County of Fresno versus WCAB O'Brien. Following the guidance of the Supreme Court, the opinion concluded that an injured worker is not entitled to permanent disability payments until he is deemed permanent and stationary. O'Brien's COLA should not have commenced, therefore, until January 1, 2009. Jurisdiction to correct the award in the Fresno case was available because of their timely petition for writ of review. A WCAB decision is not final until the appellate process has been exhausted. Other legacy COLA awards that are now inconsistent with Duncan may not be as easily reversed, especially cases that are not in the appeal process. Some claim administrators are considering the use of a petition to reopen to request a modification of a now incorrect COLA award. There are two theories upon which a petition to reopen can be used if filed within the five-year time limit from the date of injury. Labor Code 5410 requires evidence of new and further disability, and Labor Code 5803 requires a showing of good cause. 
A change in the law has been held to be good cause to reopen a case and amend an award under 5803, the second theory. There may, may therefore be continuing jurisdiction over a number of legacy COLA cases under Labor Code Section 5803 if the petition to reopen is filed within five years of the date of injury. And now our fraud report. Lavaki Falay of Soledad pled guilty to one felony count of fraudulent use of his brother's contractor's license and one misdemeanor count of failing to secure workers' compensation insurance. Mr. Fale was doing business as Vi Construction. Problems started when contractor state licensing board investigators observed construction of a deck in Carmel Highlands and contacted the workers who indicated they worked for Vi Construction. Further investigation discovered that there was no workers' compensation insurance in place for the workers. License board investigators then contacted Monterey County District Attorney investigators from the Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit for assistance. The investigators returned to the construction site where the defendant appeared and indicated he was working under his brother's contractor license. The defendant's brother told investigators that he did not give his brother permission to use his license and did not know he was working under his license number. The defendant later admitted he did not have permission to use his brother's license. Nikki Lee Buxman of Lake County was sentenced by a federal judge to five months in prison followed by 36 months supervised release including five months home detention, as well as over $100,000 in restitution for making a false statement or fraud to obtain federal employers' compensation. Buxman pleaded guilty to the charge on January 28th. Buxman owned and operated the TNT Takeover Mixed Martial Arts Boxing Gym in Roseville, while at the same time receiving federal workers' compensation benefits from the Department of Labor. Buxman claimed to have sustained injuries while working as a letter carrier for the United States Postal Service. Buxman stated in several forms she submitted to the Department of Labor that she had no work activities and had earned no income during the time period which she owned and operated the gym. An undercover agent also caught Buxman teaching defensive tactics techniques, replacing light bulbs, cleaning windows, and sweeping exercise mats. This case is the product of an extensive investigation by the United States Postal Service Office of Inspector General. New government statistics show federal health care fraud prosecutions are at an all-time high. There have been over 900 fraud prosecutions already this year. That's a 24% increase over the total for all of last year when 731 people were prosecuted for health care fraud through federal agencies across the country. And prosecutions have gone up 71% from five years ago. Justice Department officials said the increase runs parallel with what they're seeing when looking at health care fraud broadly, in part because of a couple of big busts this year, as well as several cases involving fraud in the private sector. One case alone in February brought in 111 people, the largest takedown to date for a Medicare Fraud Task Force. In that case, doctors, nurses, and executives were accused of falsely billing Medicare more than $225 million. 
In 2010, the government recovered a record $4 billion from health fraud cases. Experts predict government will ultimately net $4.9 billion in fraud and abuse savings over the next 10 years. And in financial news, the Labor Department announced that a fund that compensates federal employees for work-related injuries will run out of cash in the last quarter of 2012 if the U.S. Postal Service defaults on an upcoming $1.2 billion payment. The Postal Service has more than 560,000 full-time employees and is the largest employer of workers covered by the Federal Employees Compensation Act. The Postal Service still plans to make the payment due in October, but the agency said that without relief from Congress, it could not guarantee it would have enough cash. The Labor Department said that without the Postal Service's usual hefty contribution, the fund would be unable to pay any benefits in the last four months of 2012. The assessment from the Labor Department could apply more pressure on Congress to provide financial relief to the Postal Service. The Postal Service is scrambling to find ways to save money. In June, it suspended payments to a federal, federal retirement fund to free up cash for its operations. The Postal Service has struggled to cope with plummeting mail volumes and skyrocketing employee costs. Results from California workers' compensation insurers for the first quarter of this year were a mixed bag with some measurements improving and others declining. The average statewide insurer rate per $100 of payroll in the first quarter was $2.38, up 3% from the average rate charged in 2010. While higher, that's still 62% less than the average rate charged in the second half of 2003. 2003 is considered the high water mark for workers' comp rates before the system was overhauled by SB 899. Also higher was the total written premium for first quarter of this year. The total is $3.1 billion, 7% more than the amount from the last quarter of last year. Insurer's loss ratio for the first quarter was 71%. That's two percentage points lower than the same period in 2010 and three percentage points lower than for all of 2010. The average 2010 claim for lost work time will probably come in at $62,000 per claim. That's a 1% decline from 2009 and the first such decline since 2005. Despite this good news, the Rating Bureau reported shows that more claims are getting filed. In 2010, 6.9% more claims were filed than the previous year. The Rating Bureau said this is the first increase in indemnity claim frequency in a decade and only the second increase in the last 20 years. And in other news, Carrie Seidman, an entertainment critic for the Herald Tribune, rated the pilot episode of Workers' Comp, the new television comedy series, as both professional and funny. The show is based on the experiences of Dory Spurko, running a business that processed workers' compensation claims. The pilot episode was screened at the Sarasota Film and Entertainment Office's Mixer. Critics described the episode as well-written, effectively acted, nicely edited, and best of all, genuinely funny. 
the claims agency's founder is played by Emmy and Golden Globe nominee Morgan Fairchild, who was described as appropriately addled and eccentric. And Robert Carradine was a little slapstick as an unstable lawyer lacking in ethics. The rest of the ensemble are flawed characters whom you could easily see becoming fond friends after a couple of episodes. The two claims featured in this pilot were actual cases. Farmers Insurance celebrated the transfer of 800 employees from its Simi Valley office to its new Woodland Hills building. A grand opening was attended by the company's CEO and Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaragosa. Sixteen miles away at the Simi office, it was a considerably more subdued scene. The front parking lot was only half full, and a blue and white available sign greeted passing motorists on Cochrane Street. Farmers will transfer the remaining 400 Simi employees to the Woodland Hills office early next year. Farmers is locked into a lease for the 240,000 square foot Simi building through 2017. They are looking for a new tenant with help from the city officials. The company had been located in Simi for nearly three decades and was the city's second largest private employer. Farmers decided to move to the San Fernando Valley after acquiring 21st Century Insurance, which came with an available 217,000 square foot building. Experts claim the loss of 1,200 jobs in Simi will have a major impact on Ventura County. The multiplier effect could impact 800 more jobs as a result of employees who won't be around spending money on weekdays. Farmers has provided its transferred senior employees with subsidized ride-share vans. Officials say the transfer of the 800 employees over three weekends in July went smoothly. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.